Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, y'all, welcome back. This lecture's on the con. We are finishing up seminar 14. This is our fourth and final installment on this just bizarre seminar. I think there's a good reason why this thing has not been translated into English, even though I still wish that somebody would come along and give us a proper translation because there are enough big insights in here to make it worth our while. Um, last time we started with a really brief and obvious statement about the fundamental fantasy. And that is pretty much what Lacan means when he says fantasy here. Now, the bulk of this seminar is the logic of fantasy. And so you see Lacan flexing logical muscles that in many ways he he doesn't have, unfortunately. Um, But he's doing his best here to present us with a logic that demonstrates that the big other does not exist. And by this big other, he means a full, complete, totalizing entity known as the big other. You could also think of this as the symbolic. So the fundamental fantasy says that the big other exists, that there is this place where all is known and power can be on everywhere and the like. And Lacan is coming out here and saying, that's just not true. There is always at least one thing that the symbolic or the big other um, cannot grasp, that eludes its grasp. Um, And we've been over this in the previous session, so I won't spend much time with it. The fundamental fantasy is that the big other exists. And the truth that Lacan wants to reveal here is that the big other, in fact, does not exist. It is always already barred. And that is a logical, structural, necessary bar. It cannot exist. And in fact, you might even say that its MO, its purpose, and its operativity as an entity to begin with is founded on this kind of occlusion or papering over of the fact that it is effectively impossible, which doesn't make it real. It just means that the goal of the symbolic cannot be reached. There will never be a dictionary that contains all the words operational in a given language at any given time despite all the efforts that the dictionaries go through at the end of each year to figure out which words to admit and which words to exclude from the next edition of the dictionary. There you see the big other at work. It's totalizing effort to encompass and legitimate um, what counts. The best person, again, to follow up with on this thought is Alain Badiou. His entire philosophical system is premised on what Lacan is here doing with the one which is to say that oneness is an effect. It's a rhetorical move, and it is every bit imaginary as a result. The fundamental fantasy of a whole, big, complete other does not exist. Okay, if that's true, 
why do we all think otherwise? Why do we believe that there is some sort of deep state that has access to all of our information? Why do we have theories of God and practices um, lifelong that support these theories? Um, a Lacanian answer is to look back to basics of child development. And I'm going to put this in ways that sound like a kind of developmental model, but don't think of it that way. Think of these more as stages that are um, retroactively um, rendered meaningful. So the origin of the fundamental fantasy really has to do with what each of us goes through in the sense that each of us are neurotic. The needs of the infant are increasingly subject to and barred by and within the field of the big other. And that's the basic move here, is that we are born into these bodies that require copious amounts of care. We are subjects of pure need, as Lacan puts it in the subversion of the subject essay. Um, and we are dependent for our survival on the care that others, primary caregivers in particular, bring to us. But all of that care occurs on their terms. We're the one crying, but they're the one that get to interpret the cry. Lived experience at an infantile level is structured atop and in terms of the other's demand. Orality, anality, the phallic moment, each of these so-called stages, if you want to play that game, is pegged to the other's authority. So in the case of, let's say, the cry, the, the child cries, and it is the job of the primary caregiver to interpret the meaning of that cry. And in interpreting that meaning to show up with the blanket or the food or whatever the primary caregiver thinks um, is the need that needs to be met. The point, though, is that it is entirely on the primary caregiver to make that call. The infant doesn't cry out blanket. They just cry. So it is dependent on the interpretive maneuvering of the big other, whether and to what extent this need gets met. Um, it looks like it's the child demanding the big other, in the case of orality, bring me the breast is kind of like how the big other often hears the child's cry. Um, but remember, it's the big other's decision when and to what extent to bring it. Um, anality flips that around. And now it's not the demand of the infant interpreted by the big other. Now it's just straight up the demand of the big other, which is simple. Shit. Not here, not then, but instead here and now. Now, in anality, the, the, the emphasis is on the big other's authority to tell the child when to shit. And then as you move forward um, into the phallic moment, and then you, you might get something like a, like a scopic moment and an invocatory moment, we start getting closer to what is the desire of the big other. My point here is that everything in the child's early life is dependent on the interpretive maneuvering and the demanding operation of a big other to such an extent that the cause of my desire is an effect of growing up around the other's demand. This is part of how we can arrive at a theory of desire that is hooked so deeply and profoundly into other people, into the big other, is that we simply grew up 
subordinate to the other's demand. As time goes on, we gradually come to see the other as full and thus never lacking in demands because they never have been lacking in demands. Now, that's not to say that it hasn't been the case. Lacan's point too about the mother is that this is a barred other who demonstrates lack to the infant. Um, this is a big other fantasy though, where we have an image of someone else or some other entity, um, society with a capital S, I don't know, the gram or whatever the fuck you call social media platform, but you have these see you on the apps or whatever this kind of shit, um, where at any given moment, this big other can tell us what's needed. And that's important here. The fantasy of a whole big other is the fantasy of an other that is able to tell us what's needed at any given time. So the math theme for fantasy, split subject, lozenge, little a, is my life lived according to what I imagine you demand of me. And that imagine turn is very important here because at some level, it's the work of the infant imagining what it is that the big other is demanding. It's in many ways um, an imaginative project that the, um, the infant engages in um, as much as it is a, a realistic experience that they have with a big other. Which is why we also have these two paths out of fantasy in the graph of desire. You can go left out of fantasy in the graph of desire and go back to this fantasy of a huge, full, demanding other with all the answers, this treasure trove of sorts. Or you can turn right and you can traverse the fundamental fantasy onward and upward to signifiers of the fact that the other is truly barred. And beyond that moment, you can pass through anxiety and into the drive. This was our last series on the drive working through this material, so I won't rehearse it here. You can check it out on your own. The key question though, at the level of traversing the fundamental fantasy, passing through anxiety in this case, around signifiers of the fact that the big other lacks, which is our work in seminar 10, another lecture series that you can consult. And from there passing over into the field of the drive, um, the question is, how do you get from an experience of the object as someone else's demand on me to an experience of the object as your own lack, as my own lack? So let me rephrase that. How do you get from an experience of the object as the big other's demand to an experience of the object as your own lack? Note that move. It's a shift from objects to openings, from desire to the drive, from someone else's desire to a drive that is yours. It's a shift in Lacan's terms from a world of meaning in which things can be had and possessed to a world of being in which the only thing to be have and possessed is precisely what you don't have to possess, namely what you lack. Lack becomes the thing that you can now have in the experience of the drive. Which is why in the mathem of the drive, when Lacan presents it in the Subversion of Subject essay, he says that the split subject and the capital D both fade and disappear. The only thing left of the drive 
when it is operationalized is that lozenge in the middle, which is an opening with an edge-like structure, an opening that can close and then open again. It has a pulsative structure like the unconscious, like the erogenous zones. This is part of what the mathem of the drive is designed to show you. When the split subject and the big D of the demanding other disappear, what you have left is a series of openings, not objects. And this is uh, what the drive fundamentally traffics in, not objects, but openings. To such an extent that, as you may have heard in our last series, we have a very basic definition here. The cause of desire is the object of the drive. The cause of desire being lack. What's left as we traverse the fundamental fantasy, breach anxiety, pass through signifiers of the barred other? What's left are these erogenous zones, openings, operators, all with rim-like structures, in and out logics that are recursive, pulsative, like respiration, in, out. Increasingly difficult because as you may have noticed, I have a very bad cold today. But also, as you heard me discuss in the drive, like blowing bubbles, the way a child blows bubbles with gum. The important part about these openings that the drive accesses is that they are all localized. And this is what Lacan pulls out of 14 for us, is that all of these erogenous zones are localized to my body. The erogenous zones that the drive operates on are not yours, they're mine. You feel me? They're localized to one's own body. And this is partly why Lacan in seminar 14 wants to try and illustrate the fundamental fantasy and its implications by focusing on the sexual subject, especially as this individual is implicated in the sexual act with another sexual subject, which gets us back to the opening structures of lack that we started this series with, um, sexuation, alienation, and separation. In many ways, Lacan is here building on the theory of sexuation that he develops in seminar 11, where you have this statement, to be a human is to be an organism and a subject. And to be a sexed human is to admit that a certain part of your organismic living embodied being has been lost. What's lost in the process of sexuation, when this organism and this subject come together to create this sexed being, this sexual subject, what's lost is a bone deep sense and a real truth. And it's this, there's nothing in organismic life to support the heterogenital bipolarities of sex and gender. This is very clearly articulated in seminar 11, leading up to 14. These heterogenital bipolarities, they only exist at the level of sexed social life. In other words, as your undergraduates sometimes say, um, they're socially constructed. And this is important to remember because 
as you get into 14, Lacan is talking a lot about male and female, masculine and feminine, man and woman. Don't ever forget that when he's talking about this stuff, the basic dilemma that he is starting from is the fact of sexuation, which is a social construct. That there is, in other words, nothing in organismic life that supports the heterogenital bipolarization of beings. Now, that doesn't mean that it's impossible to identify men and women, boys and girls, male and female in the animal kingdom, ourselves being there as well. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the rigidification of this and, and, the, and the, the way that that difference makes a difference in society is important. There are many differences between bodies in nature, but only some of those differences make a difference in the social order. And whether you have a penile organ or not happens to be one of those weird differences that is forced to make a difference in society. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist in nature. Male lions tend to have penises, visible even. But it means that that is not a difference that necessarily makes a difference in the social order of lions. It happens that it does, but it doesn't have to be. That is a contingent operation. And that's what he's saying here. Sexuation is a contingent, not a necessary process. The fact of sexuation can't be denied, but nor can the truth, which is that it could have been otherwise. And it still can be. That's partly what's at stake here as well. So if what's lost is the difference between those two differences, what's gained in the process of sexuation is a sense of death. This is primarily why all drives are death drives. Sexed being is lethal, deadly being. Why? Because libido as undivided, as whole body disorganized to the point of unorganized um, is subordinate to the reproductive ends of the species. That's what happens is the polymorphous perverse experience of one's own body gets subordinate to the reproductive logics that occur at the level of the species. And what Lacan wants to point out, again, hearkening back to 11 here, is that in order for a species of horse, for example, to thrive and to live on, its individual members that produce that species die. And that's important. The species lives on. I, however, as an individual member of that species, do not. The first acquaintance we have with death is right there at the level of having the body pressed into the service of sexual reproduction. Which is why Lacan can say in Seminar 11 that there are these two fundamental lacks. The first is a real lack that occurs at the level of libido lost to the process of sexuation. The second is the lack that we're all much more familiar with, the lack known as alienation, which is also an acquaintance with death. That's important here. Alienation, castration, this, this process of lack that occurs when you enter the symbolic 
and when the symbolic enters you, is um, a familiarity with death that reproduces at some level the familiarity with death that you already had at the level of libido, at the level of reproduction, at the level of sexuation. And here at the level of the symbolic in the field of alienation, death here takes on the figure of absence. What is not present at the level of the signifier, at the level of the sentence. So you heard me talk about horses a second ago. Ain't no horses in this room that I can tell. There are some images of horses here and there in this room. If you look carefully, you might see one. What? But for the most part, they're elsewhere. And that's the point. When you have the signifier, the thing can just go fucking die. It can be somewhere else, which is why Lacan oftentimes will tell you that the first signifier was the tombstone. Signifiers are associated with death. Um, we don't need to go much further than that. I just want to flag this for you as an important part of this. Death is always at play um, when you have sexual beings engaged in something referred to as the sexual act. But I also bring this up because I want to note that the same elementary graph that we use to generate a linguistified subject in Lacanian theory and technique is the same graph that we can use to generate a sexual subject in Lacanian theory and technique. So the elementary graph that you're very familiar with is the one that I can sketch out right now. Let me just share my screen. So what you can see here is a familiar graph that uh, that gets a lot of traction in, in Lacanian circles, and for good reason. It's an important one. It is the basic elementary graph of the graph of desire. So you have this diachronic temporal arrow of speech and of time that unfolds. And then you have this retroactive arrow that comes up here. You've seen this a million times. Here is the subject of pure need at this delta, and here is the result, a split subject. I'm not going to go through all of this, except to say that this diachronic arrow, the left to right one, is also the arrow of, arrow of speech and language. It's also the register at which need passes into demand which is partly how in the graph of desire, you can have desire coming up at the next level. And then above desire, of course, you have drive. I mean, this is the basic. It's funny, people talk a lot about like the symbolic, real and imaginary registers in Lacan's work. Fuck that noise. These are the registers. Need, demand, desire, and drive. They're perfectly aligned right here need, demand, desire, and drive. I think that's a much more productive use of people's time than trying to sort out all this real imaginary symbolic stuff, which is really not that complicated. I don't understand why people spend so much time with this. But here for our purposes, don't forget, demand is a need expressed in language. The split subject is a subject that still experiences need because it is embodied, but also recognizes at some level 
that they have access to these words that they can use. So here is your enunciating subject, the embodied subject of pure need who has material biological urges and the like. And then over here, you have what Lacan calls the grammatical subject, the subject as it appears in language. This is primordially what the split subject amounts to. Don't forget, though, also that with Lacan, where there is two, there is always this additional three, which is the bar that splits the subject itself, the gap irreducible between need and <clears throat> demand that the split subject also embodies, represented here by objea. Now, this same graph, and again, forgive me for moving fast through this, <clears throat> can be duplicated at the level of the production, not just of split subjects, but of sexual subjects. And here's how we charted that out last time. You have the unconscious producing a whole host of partial objects that then retroactively find their way into sexual acts, past and present. And the result here is this sexual subject. This is a diagram to be worked on and perhaps even junked and thrown away. I'm not entirely pleased with how this thing pans out, but it is thoroughly suggested in 14 that this is how Lacan sees the constitution of the sexual subject in an abstract, almost nosebleed um, way. And we're using, again, the same elementary graph that we use to build the graph of desire. So that's another reason why I want to be able to attach sexuation and alienation here. The sexuation process that produces a sexual subject mirrors in form and trajectory the alienation process that produces the classic Lacanian subject, the split subject. And that's part of what Lacan is up to here in 14, is to talk about how you get something known as the sexual subject. What is at stake in all of this? Lacan tells us in the latter part of seminar 14, on page 209, in fact, that he's working towards an aletheia of the sexual act. Now, for those of you that read Heidegger, particularly late Heidegger, but also you can see this in Being in Time too. aletheia is a big term in phenomenology after Husserl. Heidegger makes a big fuss about aletheia, and it's great that he does because it's a great breakthrough in Western thought. It's from the Greek verb lethian, which means to conceal. And when you put a little A in front of a Greek verb, it negates it. Like apathetic, apathy, for instance, is a descendant of the lexical origin in Greek. Aletheia works the same way. When you put that little A in front of a Greek verb, it negates it. So aletheia is an unconcealment. It is a disclosure. It is a discovering, if you will. It's tough to capture this um, in English, but I think those terms do. And that's what Lacan is up to here. He wants to bring the sexual act 
out of concealment. He wants to drag that motherfucker into the broad daylight of conceptualization and not just conceptualization, but also analytic technique. And here's how he starts with that. First, there is this fantasy. This is the realm of concealment. The sexual act is treated as a means to achieve oneness, sexual union with another person. The belief that to be in love and to be intimate and to have great sex is to kind of fuse yourself with this other being. Now, in the experience of love, we've seen this from Aristophanes forward. And we've also seen Lacan completely sweep the legs out from underneath this theory. His theory of love is, is not at all akin to this. It is, however, akin to his theory of the sexual non-rapport, which we're working towards here in 14. Lacan is developing his thought here. Don't forget, for Lacan, it's always about developing his thought. And here is some proto-thinking of the work that he's going to fully present in seminars 19 and 20. Now, fantasy is closely akin to desire. Now, the mathing for fantasy is a split subject living their lives in relation to what they think other people want from them or are demanding of them even. Desire is the experience of lack, of never quite being sure what it is that the other wants. Here, it's symbolized in Lacanian algebra by OJA. And don't forget, there's a reason why it's a little enclosed A, this kind of hole and opening of sorts. Behind every experience of lack, though, represented by little a, there is a process of castration that first occurred. This is represented in Lacanian algebra by the minus phi, the phallus with the ne negative sign in front of it that you oftentimes see in these lectures, but also um, in, in Lacanian talk. And you oftentimes hear it described as this minus phi. This is the no of the father, the first part of two parts in the name of the father. And this is what the unconscious says about sex. This is in many ways a summary of what we arrived at in our third uh, lecture in this series, that behind every experience of lack, there is an experience of loss. Behind every little a is a minus phi. This is what the unconscious says about sex. It's not just that you long for this other person. It's about why you long for anyone in particular at all. It's this experience of loss of an incision that results in an experience of lack. In other words, an opening. Think of this as the cut, that's the minus phi, the slice, the incision, and obja is the wound that opens up after that cut is made. And that cut is not complicated. It is effectively the experience of prohibition that, this, that castration so thoroughly represents. It's about prohibition, and it's not a bad way to be, but if you're uh, typical, it's, it's one that you went through, and behind your experience of lack is this earlier experience, although structurally part of the same set, the same moment, if you will, of castration. That's what the unconscious constantly reminds us about sex, is that it's not just about desire and longing coming together, but also about the fact that we long because we've been castrated, because we've had to pass through the defiles of the signifier. And that's what longing and desire are constantly papering over. You see, desire is so intent 
on going after its object, its goal, what it wants, that it oftentimes neglects the question of why we want. And to say we want because we lack is insufficient. And it's certainly not limited to Lacan. He even says this much in 14. He's like, this bullshit about lack being the cause of desire. He's like, that's not me. You can read that in like every other philosopher. And that's why, partly why he wants to trot out Spinoza constantly on this topic. Desire is the essence of man, of humans, of our kind. Behind every experience of desire, where you're chasing something, is an acquaintance with loss, castration, not with something, but with the production of nothing by way of these no things that are produced in the experience of castration. <clears throat> now, this is important because the question then becomes, how does the unconscious tell us about this? How does the unconscious speak this truth in the sexual act? Remember, we're working on an aletheia here, and we're trying to get closer and closer to something known as the truth which is a revelation, an apocalyptic truth, if you will. There's that A again at the front of apocalypse, just like at the front of Aletheia. This move from fantasy to desire to the unconscious telling us that behind every desire is an experience of castration. They have it in the bedroom just as much as you do. That's what the unconscious says. Now we get to the Lacanian moment. How does the unconscious say what it says about sex? Lacan's answer is simple, at the level of the symptom. At the level of something, he says in 14, going wrong in the sexual act. This is the rhetoric of the unconscious. This is the way it speaks truth. It speaks truth at the level of slip, error, failure, forgetting, insert your parapraxis here at the level, in other words, of symptom, when something goes wrong. The unconscious speaks its truth about sex in moments when the sexual act as an attempt to achieve union with another person goes wrong. This is, of course, why most of our sexual fantasies are about things going right in the bedroom. The fantasy that we could achieve wholeness, completion, oneness, fusion with another being while in the sack belies the truth, which is that that shit ain't possible. And in fact, what happens in the bedroom is a proliferation of symptoms where what we see is in fact the sexual act as potential union continually broken down and rendered not potential, but impotential. You got ears to hear, you know where I'm going with this. And if you've read 14, you know where Lacan is headed with this. There are many symptoms of the truth of the sexual act, namely that it doesn't exist any more than the big other when you're getting busy. That's important here. There are lots of ways that the unconscious symptomatically expresses the fact that the sexual act, like the big other, doesn't exist. Premature ejaculation is one, but Lacan wants to highlight that only in order to shift attention. 
and say that actually the problem here, the symptom is not premature ejaculation. The more important issue is what he calls premature day two mescence, a de-swelling of the penile organ. That's what matters here. This is a physiological testament to the material fact that what goes up must come down. The dilemma of impotence in the sexual act is more profound a symptomatic expression of its truth than premature ejaculation. Premature ejaculation, in which the male penile organ can remain hard during and after, that's called porn. Are you kidding? That's just the pornographic moment. Lacan wants to highlight instead the de-swelling of the penile organ, not the erection, but the derection, if you will, and what that means and why that occurs and how that functions as a symptom of the fact that the sexual act doesn't exist. But there's something more here. And this is what's important toward the end of seminar 14. Premature detumescence marks the limit or the edge between pleasure and jouissance. This is a great insight that comes out of 14. I don't think there are a lot of great insights that come out of 14, but this is definitely one of them. The direction of the male organ during the sexual act marks a limit or an edge between pleasure and jouissance and in fact kind of imposes a barrier. It's very easy to say that what's happening in seminar 14, like in a lot of Lacan's middle work here, is he's working towards what he calls an algebra of edges. And that's important here. So in theories of the drive, for instance, Lacanians often talk about the rim-like structure of the erogenous zone or the source of a drive. <clears throat> what matters is the rim element, this notion of an edge. And Lacan is going to be playing with edges a lot as he goes further on because edge is also a mathematical concept in the way that rim is not. The mathematology of the edge is partly what he's after here when he's dealing with erogenous zones, openings at the level of the drive. Um, the penile groove would also fit here too as well. Um, and you can see this in a creed. An algebra of edges is what he's after here. And that's partly what premature detumescence participates in, is it creates an edge. It doesn't create, let me rephrase, it highlights an edge between pleasure and jouissance. It shows us that there is a jouissance beyond the pleasure principle. There is a jouissance beyond the experience of pleasure. Lacan says that's what the direction of the male penile organ as a symptomatic expression of the fact that the sexual act doesn't exist shows us when it occurs. But again, there's something more here. Premature detumescence doesn't just show us that there's a jouissance beyond the experience of pleasure. It also guards against our passage into that experience of enjoyment. It is a guard against going too far past the pleasure principle and into something beyond it, namely enjoyment. Day two is 
a stumbling or a lapse of the sexual act that protects against the true failure, its true impossibility, not the physiological barrier to oneness that it poses, but the symbolic fact of castration. Premature detumescence doesn't just shut down the sexual act and prohibit the fundamental fantasy of sex from being realized. It also reminds us that we're castrated. Castration here, it doesn't just mean that there will always be at least two signifiers between you and me when we get in the bedroom together. Now, those two signifiers could be man and woman, whatever the case may be. Castration doesn't just ensure that there will always be signifiers between us, even and especially when we refuse to talk about sex. Because good sex, you don't have to talk about it. It just happens naturally. And you say, oh, it was just the chemistry. The chemistry was there, right? There are always signifiers between us. That's partly what castration ensures, is that there will always be signifiers between us in the bedroom, which is also another reason why the sexual act as potential union always fails. But that's not all, again. You see the theme emerging here. There's always something more, an additional one. That's the theme of 14, of course. There's always this additional one beyond what the symbolic can count and account for. Um, premature detumescence effectively makes access to jouissance something beyond pleasure, comfort, the pursuit of satisfaction, completion, wholeness, and oneness. It signals that there's something else out there, and it guards us against it. The same way that anxiety guards against the drive, premature detumescence, the de-erection of the male penile organ, according to Lacan, it guards against and at the same time signals something beyond pleasure. And that beyond pleasure here is, of course, Jesus. Detumescence, what a word. This de-erection of the male penile organ is a figure or example of the sexual act going wrong. It is a symptomatic expression of what typically occurs in the sexual act, which is to say that it goes wrong at some level. It's a defense or protection against the experience of something beyond pleasure at the level of one's own body. Jouissance. And that's the final addition. What is beyond pleasure that premature detumescence protects us from is an experience of jouissance that we sense is elsewhere, but in reality is in fact localized to our own bodies. That's why Lacan is going to say that the sexual being is one in which their body has been dislocated from jouissance. There's been some sort of dihesion that's opened up between the body and enjoyment. And the great irony and the dilemma of that is that my enjoyment is always uniquely my own. My jouissance is just that. It's mine. It's localized to my own body, but I always experience it as somewhere else, just beyond the pleasure that, um, that I have. This is the important part about all this, in my view. Jouissance is always embodied and uniquely one's own. It cannot be located except in one's own body. 
and I'm not making this up, thankfully, because I would not want to be responsible for these insights. This is from page 222, about 50 pages before the end of seminar 14. Jouissance cannot be located except in one's own body. That's the only place to find it, even though we always experience it as somewhere else, as sexed beings. The failure of the sexual act effectively divides the experience of bodily pleasure from the no less embodied experience of enjoyment, always keeping jouissance apart, just past, beyond whatever else it is I do with my body. All of which is not a really profound insight. We've heard this before, and you can read this all over Lacan's work. It amounts to what we already know about castration. It is a prohibition against enjoyment, against jouissance. The failure of the sexual act in this sense is simply a reminder that jouissance is prohibited to all who speak. Which brings us back to that male fiction, the one that we were talking about in our last session. Detumescence, this negativizing of the jouissance accessible via the male organ, it's here from this reference point that the idea of the feminine object as a site and a source of jouissance for the male subject arises. And it's another fantasy of sorts, because as Lacan points out, also on page 222 of seminar 14, is that the idea of feminine jouissance is not the same as feminine jouissance. It's an idea of something which is different from the actuality Lacan highlights there. The castration complex for feminized bodies, according to Lacan, passes through the same reference point. Impotence, even if only as a threat when you enter the bedroom, is the shared orientation of male and female subjects when they undergo castration. And a starting place, however small it may be or get, by which to orient ourselves with regards to the jouissance accessible to each sexual subject position. And again, this is Lacan making this move. I'm not entirely sure I agree with this, but lectures on Lacan is designed to provide clear, coherent, and accessible readings of his texts. And this is what I read happening in this text. Is that, in other words, um, day two messence is, uh, is a shared reference point and an orientation for what happens to male and female sexed bodies during the stage of castration. But let's make no mistake. This male organ is not the phallic object. When Lacan says phallus, he doesn't mean dick. You know this already, but do you actually understand why that's the case? We all know that, but why exactly is it not? Because they kind of look the same. They kind of sound the same. How could you not allow some resonance there? And yet everyone will just tell you, no, no, no. The phallus is not the penis. Well, let's talk about it for a second. Castration is not literal. Circumcision is literal. That is literally a cutting off of a piece of the penile organ. 
But castration, as Lacan sees it, is not a literal experience, even though it does occur to the letter. It's literal in the sense that it involves language. It's literal in the sense that it produces a series of negations on the human form. It's literal in the sense that a tattoo is literally inscribed into your body. And let's not forget, the body is the first big other. It's the original site of language. Castration is a figurative, symbolic experience. It's a prohibition against having complete, unmediated access to one's own body. That's what prohibition and castration amount to. They amount to a prohibition against having a completely unconstrained, unmediated access to one's own body. That polymorphous perversity that we oftentimes like to associate via Freud with infantile experience, yeah, that shit's all gone by the time the paternal function occurs, by the time castration and alienation pass through. What happens when you are inducted into the symbolic is that there's now always a signifier or several between you and your body. It is now a mediated experience with one's own body, which is partly how you can have an alienated experience with jouissance. It's always localized to your body, but your experience of your own body is always mediated through signifiers. <clears throat> page 223, the very next page in seminar 14. This is what the castration complex means. There is no phallic object. Now, what that means is that it's been removed. It's been taken from you. The phallic object was what you hoped you could be to satisfy the primary caregiver's desire. Castration comes along and says, eh, minus that shit, subtract that shit. Nope, you're done with that one. No, she doesn't have it and you can't be it for her. If you'll recall some of our previous lectures, that's what Lacan means here. Castration means there is a no in front of the phallic object. When he says there is no phallic object, he means the phallic object has been prohibited. You can no longer imagine yourself as being able to complete and make whole another being. That's what castration instills in us. If we're neurotic, right? Don't forget, the pervert weasels around that and is very keen on being the phallic object that Lacan is saying, thou shalt not. Only and precisely because there's no phallic object, in other words, because we're castrated, can we dream about sexual union, which is always a dream about reacquiring, repossessing the phallic object. That's ultimately what the dream of sexual union is about. It's a dream about repossessing the phallic object, Lacan suggests here in 14. Don't forget what God takes from Adam in this genetic myth, it ain't his penis. God does not take Adam's dick. He takes a rib, a different bone. He takes a bone above the swimsuit zone in order to make Eve. And don't forget, Eve ain't the first woman. There was another before her. And what he does by removing this rib bone from Adam 
and using it to produce Eve in this myth is he inaugurates what Lacan calls the dialectic of the sexual act, where woman becomes a lost piece from man's body to be reacquired, to become once more, as the fantasy states, one flesh. If you want a myth for the sexual act, it's this genetic myth of Eve being created from a rib bone out of Adam. In much the same way, if you want a myth of love as completion, as wholeness, you go back to Aristophanes. Lacan is always doing a pretty good job of finding these originary, highly influential myths that prop up the fantasies that his own work as a theorist and a technician undermines. So Lacan's theory of love, as we saw in our lectures on 11, it undermines the myth of two beings coming together to produce one loving couple, a whole, if you will. And his critique of the fantasy of sexual union traces its origin back to a critique of this genetic myth where woman is always figured as a piece of man's body to be reacquired, repossessed by the male. And this becomes part and parcel of masculinist, misogynist ideologies, where woman is always something to be had, easily objectified because in this highly influential myth, society is routinely figuring her as a derivative of the male body. So give her back. In order for me to have one flesh, I need to have that part at least coming back to me. So you can hear here the start of phallic jouissance, as we're going to hear in uh, in the later seminars, um, coming from this um, impetus and this importance of there being one flesh lost, and then later to be regained at the level of uh, repossession of woman's body. Heterogenitalized male fantasies are all structured atop this myth, where we're always searching for what Lacan calls on the next page, 224, our phallic complement, and always in the form of a feminized body. This is the heterogenitalized fantasy that props up traditional approaches to sexuality in the West, where it's always a male body searching for a phallic complement in the form of a feminized body. Part of the reason this happens is a really simple and simplistic understanding of castration. And it's almost like in the male fantasy, in the male narrative, the discourse sounds something like this. Neither of us have the phallus. That's what we learned in castration. But you, my dear lady, lack it more than I do. Because you don't even have a penis either. And as such, you are less able than I to regain the phallus that you've lost. And as a result, you're much better suited than I am to be the phallus for me. Here is that, that 
ideology of having and being as it plays out around the dilemma of the fact that there is no phallic object. Male and female, neither has the phallus, but one of those sexed polarities has it less than the other, or to put it in Lacan's terms, lacks it more. The feminized subject position lacks the phallic object more than the male. And because it has it less, it is more able to be the phallic object. Ideology is a fascinating thing. Isn't it? Lacan wants to illustrate this further by returning to Hegel. No surprise there. And this particular chapter that fascinates everyone, apparently, about the phenomenology of spirit. This third riff in the phenomenology of spirit on the lordship and bondage. Um, what does the master enjoy? Lacan says the master enjoys the slave's body and in an economy of possession, possessing the body that you enjoy. The fantasy here is I, as master, let's say, am enjoying your body, someone else's body. In other words, my jouissance is your body. Your body is what props up and provides me with jouissance, which begs a question, how do you, dear slave, enjoy? What is this other jouissance that you perhaps might possess? But Lacan doesn't want to get after that one yet. What he wants to say is that behind this fantasy that what I enjoy is another's body, which in Lacan's terms, right, this fantasy is going to prove false, is a truth. Behind the fantasy that I enjoy your body is the fact that enjoyment only ever occurs at the level of one's own body. My enjoyment is always uniquely mine. It's a subtle but very significant difference. My enjoyment does not reside elsewhere than my own body. So what exactly do we possess? What does the my and the mine of enjoyment have? What is this something that I enjoy? Well, it's simple. It's not your body. It's mine. To traverse the fundamental fantasy is in part to arrive at this insight. The sexual act as a dream of union with another body is at root a longing for reconnection with one's own. Not in order to become whole, but in order to deal with your holes and enjoy them a little bit. The sexual act as a dream of union is at root if you pursue this aletheia, this unconcealment of the sexual act away from fantasy and towards truth, is fundamentally a longing for reconnection with your own body. And I'm not going to say reunion with your own body. I hesitate to even put re in front of connection. But this connection with one's own body is ultimately what's underpinning the sexual act. And always why it fails, too. And notice most of the failures in the bedroom get pinned on the other. When in fact, um, uh, 
the the site and the source of jouissance is one's own body. Beyond our fraught desire for union with another is an autoerotic enjoyment of our own bodies at the level of the drive. That's how this fits into the broader Lacanian system. There is something beyond the fundamental fantasy. Beyond this fundamental fantasy at the level of sex, where we desire union with another person, is the capacity to simply enjoy our own bodies in an auto-erotic way. And that does not occur at the level of the drive or at the level of desire, but at the level of its desublimation in the experience of the drive. Don't forget that. A drive is a desublimated desire. And drives are auto-erotic too, by the way. It's about making your body feel good. Let's spell this out one more time, as clearly as possible, in keeping with the goal of this lecture series, even at the risk of sounding redundant and repeating ourselves. Here we go. If I can only enjoy your body, then your body becomes a metaphor for my jouissance, which means that my jouissance is still somewhere else, displaced, adrift, Lacan says, elsewhere, foreign to me, pinned to another, in short, an other jouissance. My jouissance is another jouissance. This othering of jouissance is the hazard of the sexual act. I mean, it's fucking crazy. How nuts is it to expect another body to give us what we can only ever experience in and for ourselves, namely, our own bodies. That's basically what you're asking the sexual act to accomplish is for someone else's body to give you yours. This is an expectation that is destined to fail. Don't forget phallus and failure are closely connected here, resulting in all sorts of symptomatic expressions, including premature detumescence. Thankfully though, um, this fundamental, fantastical approach to jouissance, um, it's not our only way to enjoy. There's another path to jouissance that we can outline here at the end of our discussion of seminar 14. The task here I want to reiterate as we transition from sublimations of desire to desublimations of desire, from objects that interest us to the openings that condition the drive, is in effect to give up on stuff. That's the thing. The task in finding an alternate approach to jouissance is to give up on objects, on all the stuff, all the phallic objects. And I also mean lost objects, partial objects in the Lacanian sense. I'm talking about ribs, placentas, breasts, feces, cries, gazes, voices, any of those little A's, those objects that we are constantly hunting for, which I have symbolized in our last series on the drive as little I, little A. These are imaginary objects, or as Lacan says in Seminar 17, or in Seminar 7, they are imaginary points of fixation that are socially conditioned. All this stuff that desire goes after, forget about it including woman's body as a stand-in for the lost phallic object. 
Instead of objects, Lacan would advise us to search out openings. The openings that these excisions, these cutting out and off that produce lost objects have retroactively energized as erogenous zones. It's not about reacquainting yourself with the part that you lost, be it a breast or a feces or some stand-in for those things, sublimations of these original partial objects. It's not about reacquainting them or returning back and recognizing that you have some sort of um, you know, longing for a reacquaintance with your own shit. Um, that's not what it's about. It's about returning to your anus, not the piece of shit that you lost all those years ago. It's about the anus itself as an opening with an edge-like, rim-like structure that can open and close, that can give the gift of shit, but also withhold it. It's the operation of these bodily openings that provides us with an experience of jouissance that is uniquely ours, that is embodied, that doesn't reside elsewhere in the object-strewn world of stuff. So what are we talking about here? Not the breast, but the mouth. Not shit, but the anus. Not the cry, but the vocal cords. Big shout out to the cartel on the drive that recently had me out on that one. That was a pretty interesting image that popped up. Someone just threw it, grabbed their phone, held it up to the camera. It was an image of the human vocal cords operating. If there is a phallic drive, the erogenous zone here would probably be the vocal cords, I think. Interesting stuff. Not the gaze, but the eye. And not the voice, but the ear. And so on and so on. All of these partial objects of various drives also bring with them erogenous zones, openings in the human form, a limited number of mouths on the human body, as Lacan puts it in seven. Instead of enjoying my symptoms and failed attempts to unite with another person, I can simply enjoy my own body as a hold other, not a whole self, but an other that is perforated, that is pocked, that has holes in it. And all of these holes have a pulsing, polymorphous, desublimated effect. They are a series of pulsing, polymorphous, desublimated access points to a jouissance that is uniquely mine, that is in my own body, housed in my own body. It's not elsewhere. It's not someone else's body, but housed in mine. Beyond the pleasure principle, in other words, is a localized and way more manageable autoerotic field of enjoyment that is not based on bridging divides and closing gaps and filling holes, but instead on the operation of these openings, the pulsative opening and closing, opening and closing repetitively that we see all over the human body which is why I like to emphasize the respiratory drive, breathing. Philosophers are slowly waking up to philosophies of respiration. Um, Lacanians have known about it for much longer. And this is really where Lacan ends the logic of fantasy. It's on the topic of autoerotic jouissance, how to enjoy one's own body. Now we could go on and talk about how this plays out in analytic experience. 
technically speaking, that is where he ends, seminar 14, is on treating the analyst's office as the bedroom, a throwback to his earlier comment about the couch as the bed, but a space in which the sexual act has been foreclosed. It has been outright rejected. You don't get to fuck in the analyst's office the same way you do in the bedroom. But there is some equivocation there. There is some sort of a connection and a dihesion as well between the two spaces. Um, it's a reminder to, Lacan says, that um, if the primary caregiver is the first barred other that one confronts in the field of desire, that the analyst, I would suggest, is the last barred other that one confronts on the way to the drive. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that when the analyzan shows up and wants to do this thing called psychoanalysis, they typically assume that the analyst is somebody who has all the answers, like a big other that is complete, a treasure trove of meaning and significance. In other words, that they are subjects supposed to know, as Lacan puts it. The analyst needs to fall from that height in order to do the job of analysis, Lacan says. They need to fail. Don't forget, phallus and failure are closely akin, <laughs> etymologically. The analyst as a subject supposed to know must show themselves at some level to be incomplete, fallen, split, just like the subject in front of them in many ways. Here, in other words, we're looking at signifiers of the fact that the other doesn't exist in this room or elsewhere, that there is no big other, that the other is always already barred. So you can see this turn out of the analyzant's fantasy that the analyst is some doctor with all the answers and into upwards and onwards into the graph of desire to into signifiers of the fact that the analyst is in fact complete, uh, incomplete, lacking, just like uh, every big other. Um, this is important, and I'm, I'll stop here, but this is important because part of what the analyst does when they fall is they condition the analyzan's pursuit of the drive. And I'll leave that there as not a riddle because it's really just a referent, um, or I should say a reference because it points back to the work that we did on the drive and in particular to where all that work started with a mapping of the internal eight at the end of seminar 11. That diagram, the final diagram of 11 is of the final substantial diagram is of this internal eight. And what's missing from it, although Lacan is good to add demand, identification, desire, um, and transference, what's missing is a sense of movement. The way that this diagram has a counterclockwise movement and then enters the smaller internal eight also by way of transference and then gives the option of moving around. I'm not gonna rehearse all of that. Um, feel free to send me an email if you need um, help finding that. I believe it's at the end of our session on seminars, uh, seminar 11, probably in the second or last session um, there. 
This is important though, because it suggests that when the analyst shows up as a signifier of the fact that they lack, what they're able to do is condition and support, not an identification between them and the analyzant, but a liberating of sorts of the analyzant to pursue their own drive. And with that, to access their own jouissance, a jouissance that is uniquely localized to their own body. Stay tuned for more stuff. We'll see where we take the series next. Uh, you can always find us on Lectures on Lacan um, on Instagram and also on Substack. And of course, um, email and message if, if you have any questions. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.